this semester I will be teaching my homiletics class, teaching on sermon development. If you haven't taken that, I certainly recommend that. I only do it what, once every four or five years does this class come around, even if you just want to audit it. And I will be starting a week later, actually preaching a missions conference that week that starts down in Florida. So it'll be the Sunday, the Saturday after the current schedule that the homiletics class um, will get started. But I certainly wanted to uh, mention that. Um, anyhow, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We covered the first eight verses last Wednesday. We're in verse number nine, and uh, I'm gonna, we're going we're gonna to be in nine down through twenty here, and, and you'll see how this flows together right now. Let me start reading there in verse number nine. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seek after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their, is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction or misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things over the law saith, that saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Boy, if the majority of churches under the banner of Christianity were just to understand, or world religions, for what they do, that would cause them to run and flee to God. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we certainly do love you. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, please help me to stay true to your word. Lord, I pray that you would control what I say and how I say it. And I pray, again, for your mercy, grace, your help this evening. Please use your word to strengthen us, to draw us closer to you, to meet the needs that are here. Lord, may you be glorified and honored. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who has never truly been converted, Lord, I do pray for that conviction and that drawing that even this evening they would repent and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray and ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we have been going through the book of Romans now, coming well into chapter 3, we, have, we are, are seeing how Paul is showing all of mankind is condemned before God. Romans chapter 1, concentrating on the pagan, on, on, on those who have simply turned from God, denied God, have turned unto idols, have turned unto atheism, have turned unto their sin and unto pleasure, and of course the repercussions as a result of that action, how they are condemned. But he continues on in chapter 2. It's not only the pagan, but it's also the man who follows his morality. It's also the religious man who is also condemned. It's not just the moral man and the religious man who is also condemned, just like the pagan is. It is also the Jew who is also condemned. Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. He's been 
been making that case ever since that they are all condemned. And then last week we looked at a very important section. As he begins chapter 3, he dealt with three arguments that the rabbis, that the Jewish leadership had down that they were uh, teaching and preaching against Paul. It's what they would say when they preached against Paul, why the Jews should not listen to him. And remember, we put it down in three C's last week. We had said how they taught their people that Paul taught against God's, uh, his fellow countrymen, against God's people. That they weren't special. They would demonstrate with the different verses how we are special before God. And they taught that Paul, Paul thinks we're just like the pagan and that's not true. He's a heretic. Avoid him. But you see, that was never true. Paul believed Israel was special, as he said. Uh, he said, in so many ways you're special before God. And we looked at several of those. And he said, chiefly, though, because of the oracles of God were given unto you, because of the scriptures, the knowledge they had. They had great advantage being Jewish, more than the rest of the world hands down. So Paul in no way denied that. But the fact is, Paul's point is, just because God has chosen the nation of Israel does not escape you from personal accountability before judgment. And then he went on where they attacked Paul, not only with the countrymen, but with God's covenants. How they taught that Paul, you can't listen to Paul because he denies God's faithfulness, God's promises to us. Paul said, that's in no way true. I believe God will be faithful to all of his promises, that he will fill all of his covenants. We talked about how uh, we went through that with the Apostle Paul and how he believed that God would fill all the promises to Israel, but that did not escape them from personal responsibility before God. And then they talked of how they said that Paul uh, would uh, attack the very character of God. Paul got strong in his language on that one with their slanderous approach, saying that Paul preached that we should do evil, that good may come. How they were attacking how Paul preached, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And so Paul demonstrated how I certainly know and way believe that we should do good, that evil may come. And now as we come into this section, boy, this is so important. What he's doing is he's summing all up of what he's started from chapter 1 down through verse 8. He's putting it all together in this scathing, most important way. Listen, the message today is so important. It can help you be an effective witness. Uh, again, you've been, and those of you who have been in my soul winning class know how hard I come down on it at times. How we just use 310 and 323 and how the problems that come with that. This really demonstrates that this tonight will show you the importance of when you're talking to somebody, how they truly have to see their genuine, wicked condition before a holy and a righteous God. Today will also cause you to fall on your knees before God and just say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Gives understanding of our condition and our condemnation. Paul sets this up. It's almost like a courtroom setting. Uh, this past couple of weeks, indictments has been in the news with President Trump. Well, what Paul is doing, he's issuing indictments against all of mankind. Again, it's as if a courtroom is being established. He's addressing, by the way, all men. Let me, let me cover this now still by way of introduction. Look at the very first verse. What event, or excuse me, of... Uh, uh, um, Of verse 9, what then? Are we better than they? 
the we there is what I, and he says in no and no wise. The we there, he's dealing now with the, who he's writing the letter to in this case, uh, of the Romans. He's saying, and we need to understand this, he's been talking about Jew, Gentile, pagan, and he's, he's reminding me, he starts off before he drives into this, you better remember, it's not that you're better than them, you're simply saved. That's what you are. We are saved by grace. That doesn't make us better. So it is as if Paul is setting up a courtroom and bringing the indictment against all of mankind. He's coming with a list of charges, concluding with their guilt, and oh so important, showing that what they thought was there to save them from this guilt is actually pronouncing their guilt. The charges that he gives, these 13 charges, are a collection, really, of Old Testament quotes. I'll give those as I go through them. I'll show you where he's talking about. They're all in different places throughout the Old Testament. This was, very, this was a very common method of teaching from the rabbis. It had a certain Jewish name to it. I don't think I could pronounce it right. Charez is how I think it's pronounced, but I am not certain. It literally means, though, string of pearls. So what they liked to do, one method of teaching was, was to grab a, a series of Old Testament scriptures and string a theme together, and they called it a string of pearls to do a truth. It's exactly what Paul is doing right here with this, to put this indictment together of all of mankind before a holy and a righteous God. He wants to demonstrate their guilt. The truth is, guilt and his emotion that people try and escape today the following is an article I came across while studying this week from a worldly psychologist concerning the emotion of guilt. Let me quote from it. One of the most painful, self-mutilating, time- and energy-consuming exercises in the human experience is guilt. It can ruin your day or your week or your life if you let it. It turns up like a bad penny when you do something dishonest, hurtful, tacky, selfish, or rotten. Never mind that it was the result of ignorance, stupidity, laziness, uh, thoughtlessness, weak flesh, or clay feet. You did wrong, and the guilt is killing you. Too bad. Be assured the agony you feel is normal. Remember, guilt is a pollutant, and we don't need any more of it in the world. The truth is we need guilt. Desperately. We need to feel guilty when we do something morally wrong. We need that powerful emotion. It's that emotion that lets us feel the shame and, 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 and the desire to turn another direction, to change the behavior. The emotions that God gives us, they're from the Creator. Are there those who are haunted by that emotion where it takes a place in their life that it should not? Oh, yes. There are many who are crippled by guilt when they should not be. It becomes something more of a punisher in their life and paralyzes them. Their own flesh and the devil tends to use in their life to cripple. That's certainly not the way God intended it. God intended it to, to, to produce, uh, to lead to a measure of shame in your life that you would change the behavior, turning to God. Sadly, though, people today when guilt hits tend to turn to alcohol, drugs, any kind of earthly diversion to deal with guilt. Yet the answer is God. I'm going to put this in two points tonight as we go through this. Uh, number one is going to be the character of man. 
We're going to see that going all the way down through verse 18. And then secondly, I put it like this, the cul-de-sac of the law. Now, we're going to start off with the character of man. For those of you who are taking notes, I'd put these three, down, these three things down right now. We're going to look at, it's broken down pretty easily. You could probably see this as we read through the scripture. Man's core, man's conversation, and man's conduct. So let me get into the character of man. As Paul gets into this indictment, into these charges. And, he, and these charges all deal with who man really is. Again, he will start off with the core, the inner man. And how from out that's going to flow out of his mouth. We'll get into the conversation of man's speech. And then how that affects his conduct. But let's cover man's core first. Verses 10 through 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understand that there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Now, these three verses quote from Psalm 14, 1 through 7, Psalm uh, chapter 53, 1 through 6. In the Old Testament, the context of these verses is the Lord looking down from heaven. Upon all the earth. So it's dealing with all of mankind. Not one group of people. Not one particular circumstance. It's God looking down upon the earth. And we know that man is a sinner at his very core. His inner being. He is unrighteous. He has a sinful, wicked, vile nature. You don't have to teach a child how to lie. How to steal. How to covet. It's there. He's unrighteous. The vileness is present within mankind, every single one of us. He brings up an important statement here. There is none that understandeth. Boy, think about that. Again, this is dealing with the core of man, man's inner being, our character, who we are foundational. This word understanding is often used in the Bible not simply to denote our intellect or how the mind works, but the state of the heart. For time's sake, I'm not going to turn there, but from Psalm 107, Psalm 119, several places in Psalm 119, going into the Proverbs, how it deals, this understanding deals with our relationship with God in our heart, in our reaction to God, I should say, in relation to our heart. And it's quoting again from Psalm 14. Think of how that begins. Psalm 14.1 is a very, popular, a very popular psalm. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Let me turn over. I think I want to read some of that, actually. <clears throat> Oop, I went to Proverbs. I'm going to read through that. I want you to see this. I want to point something out. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. They look down. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all going aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. It really continues all the way down through that entire chapter. But think of the very first statement, how it shows the lack of understanding. There is no God. There is no God. 
What a lack of understanding. Think about this in relation to the New Testament of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. How the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, because they are foolishness unto them. We see on, on one side, when we look at all that mankind does, we think, you know, he has incredible understanding. Look at the strong intellect. Look at all that we've done in sciences and knowledge and how we've grown. We have understanding. No, no, you don't understand. This is dealing with man before the Creator. And there is no understanding. I mean, look at, look at some of the conclusions of mankind today. It demonstrates such incredible ignorance, such, incre- such a lack of understanding. I mean, the majority of those in, in, in any Western civilization believe this, that we have evolved. How absurd. I mean, really, the absurdity of evolution is enormous. The lack of understanding is so clear. Everything screams creator. Everything. To think that all this came because of an explosion just over billions of years and somehow we got better and better and better through mutations is absurd. There's an incredible lack of understanding when it comes to God. Man looks to idols. He looks to himself instead of acknowledging the existence of a creator. Nor does man at all understand how horrible his sin is. He fails to see how wretched he is. And if men understood just that, that understanding comes into play, they would run to God knowing, listen, I have no way of saving myself. I see how vile I am. There's such a, this true lack of understanding when it comes to the holy and righteous God that one day all men will stand before and be judged. He goes on to say how man does not seek God. And think about it. This is true. Always has. God does all the initiating. From time Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Adam, where art thou? God seeks us through, through, of course, through His Scripture, through His Spirit, through His Son. It means that God is not the center of the life of mankind. It's not, it's not as if man is looking to honor God with their life, to glorify God with their life, to make God the focus of their life. Is, is that taught in any class in high school? It's not. Because man's not seeking God. They think life is about self, it's about pleasure. Find your education, find that personal. Your purpose is in the Creator. But there's none that seeketh God. But He's what it's all about. He's the Creator. Men would rather seek wealth, fame, pleasure, ease, apathy. It says, man has gone out of the way. This is sad. I wrote it like this. He's lost his purpose. The word means this. To lean in the wrong direction. Now what's even more fascinating and more condemning is how it's used in, Greek, in other Greek writings. It's used as a military term in relation to desertion. 
that's a great way to, disca- to describe man's, uh, God's creation of mankind. They deserted. They've gone out of the way. People's heart is inclined. It's bent that way because of the sin nature to leave God's way, to pursue their own way. I want to do what I want to do. Forgetting about the Creator who made them. The whole human race has deserted God. He goes on to say they are unprofitable. This word, especially this, of course, from the New Testament, the, the Hebrew equivalent of this word is is used in this sense of uh, like milk that has gone sour. That is disgusting, is it not? You know, you, milk's been in your fridge for a while. You take that thing out there. Oh, it just makes you want to toss your cookies right then and there. That's how the Bible describes us before God. We've lost our purpose, our usefulness. It's good for nothing. He goes on to say, there is none that doeth good. The truth is, even when we do good, we do good as sinners. Many times when we do good, it's so far from any true goodness. Many times it's filled with selfishness, with pride, with other motives. Even at its best, it's so far from pure goodness and holiness of the Creator. It's not even close. So, putting these verses together, I mean, it deals with all of the core of man. His mind, there's none that understands. There's none that's seeking his heart. And there's none that doeth good his will. It deals with man at his core, is corrupt and far from God. Now he goes to man's conversation. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And even as he starts off, as we go back into Romans, we're going to read these verses. You can see how he ties it together going from the inner man, from the core of man, right into conversation and why that is the case. He goes right to this in verse 13. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Oh, let me, just 14, excuse me, I shouldn't have read that far. Let me get it. The ability for us to communicate is, I mean, obviously we take it, we grow up doing it. We take it for granted. But the ability we have to express in words our thoughts, our feelings, to be able to talk. It's unlike anything else in all of creation. How we can express from being able to preach the word of God, to express your love to a spouse, to give instruction, to give direction. To be able, with our mouth, coming from our heart, to be able to give honor and glory unto the Creator. And so it's such this incredible gift that God has given us the ability to communicate the way that we have. Yet it is so vile and corrupt today. He starts off describing it as an open tomb. Think how vile that is. An open tomb. 
By the way, quote, I did not give this shit. Let me do that right now if you want to. This 13 and 14 is quoted from Psalm chapter 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10, and Psalm chapter 64. That's what he's stringing together here. We know from the book of James how it tells us no man can tame the tongue. How it's just part of our fallen, vile nature. How our words can destroy this open tomb. Tombs, of course, were sealed. Not simply to show respect for the dead. because, But the sight and stench of a rotting corpse. I don't know how many ever had ever smelled a rotting corpse. I have in New Guinea several times. I've had one in, in, the, in the back of, uh, in the inside, within the cab, the back of my truck, where I had to stop on the road several times to open the door just, just to vomit. The stench was horrible from it. And it was that little baby that the mom was holding. I wasn't about to ask the mother to, to go sit in the bed of the truck. It's a wretched smell. To walk by an open tomb would have been horrible. Would have made you sick. The decay that, that, you, would be, that you would be smelling, that you could see, it would be horrible. And yet, and this is, where, this is where Paul goes with this. Because again, out of the heart the mouth speaketh. It is the stench and the decay of our heart that becomes so clear in our speech. And what should be used to glorify God. So often that is not the case because we're so far from the Lord. And so as he goes into this, he talks about deceit. We use our words to deceive, to lie, to manipulate. Again, what should be being used to honor God, we use for our own selfish, vile purposes, for our own pride. And many times we could care less if our words hurt others. We don't even... Take time to stop and think of them. Whether, whether I'm right, you don't even take time to think. What will my words do to that person? Because you just think of self. You forget the power that is in the tongue. We use deceit. I mean, think about it. We look at deceit as, as practically nothing. I mean, I mean it's, it's, it's like the one commandment that you can get everybody to admit to. Thou shalt not lie. As if it's nothing. Forgetting the vileness of it, of this incredible means of communication that God has given to us, and we have corrupted it completely. To the point that daily lies just come out of our mouth. He compares it to the poison of an asp, obviously a poisonous snake that kills, with those fangs just lying in wait. For it's prey to come by. He, he compares it to that. The poison of asp is under their lips. He compares our words to infecting another person like a poison. Instead of our words dropping as honey in the life of somebody, more like a poison that is rapid, spreading quickly, producing death. Our slander hurts and kills and causes pain. We have this poison. We know it. It's our weapon. And we want to use it. It 
says our mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Cursing here refers to the basically wanting the worst for someone and expressing that in your speech with caustic, corrosive language. Bitterness. This is sort of an open, that, that hostility, that emotional hostility against an enemy. Vile speech against God, against men. Then from conversation, he moves on to man's conduct. Verses 15 through 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, 18 is a little different. We'll get to that. That's going to be very important in this. Their feet are swift to shed blood. It's not delayed. This is something man wants to do. He likes to kill. He likes to destroy. He li- and he will do that quickly in his anger and his fierceness. Caring little for life. I read a story today. Uh, you might have you, you read it. it was a, I think it was a, one of the lead news stories. I could not believe what I read. It was a mother and a son via text discussing the murder of this woman. That, and they did murder her um, a couple days ago. And so the police found a series of texts. You read this. It's a mother and her son. Apparently this woman had disrespected her son. And so that was enough to take her life. And listening, just reading their conversation back and forth. She needs to die for this. I'm just like, what in the world? We could see it where, where people murder over a pair of shoes or because you looked at them wrong. Or I think of the genocides that have taken place in this world. Attempted genocides. I mean, nations coming in with hatred for other people. Let's just wipe them out. I mean, I assure you, if, if somehow the legal means were in place right now in America, we would be wiped out. If you can't see the hatred that is already present. I mean, and we can see even swift to murder. Somebody, I mean, right now, if a young lady gets pregnant, let's just kill the baby. Swift to murder. Throughout all of history, man has turned to murder going all the way back right after Adam and Eve left the garden with Cain and Abel. Destruction and misery, boy, they are produced by man's conduct throughout all of world history. Man apart from God, that's all it leads to. Destruction and misery. I mean, you can read, I mean, I, being in New Guinea for all those years and knowing the history behind it and seeing the utter misery in a place that was so, so far from God. The total breakdown of family, the, the offering of children, of killing their children in a river to appease whatever God might be there due to some sickness running through the village. Destruction here literally means shattering into bits. Boy, how often, due to conflicts between people, somebody's life just left shattered 
into bits. Misery here means actual, painful, physical suffering. Men leave a trail of destruction and misery as they move throughout all of history. It says the way of peace they have not known. This is not dealing with inner peace. This is still within the context of it, of of, of the constant fighting, the constant strife, the constant conflict between individuals, between nations, much like Jeremiah chapter 6 points out. Violence and fighting from homes to towns to nations. It's the way of mankind that has turned from God. It's true everywhere you look. In verse 18, though, it certainly is a sin of mankind, but it's more than that here. When he says in 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. You see, because this is something that is given by God, the fear of God, to help govern us. So what Paul's getting to, as he gave the indictment, he basically what he's getting to now is almost a motive right now. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That's true. I mean, if the fear of God was present, it it would actually, even, even in our sinful condition, it's that fear of God that leads to knowledge, that helps us gain some understanding that helps us try and, and, and to seek Him for His help, to help control our, our, our sinful nature. God, I can't do this. I need You. A good way to understand the fear of God is this. It's, it is an awe, of course, of His greatness, of His glory, of who He is. But it is also that dread, that fear of the results of violating God's holy ways. Because judgment is coming. Remember the example that Paul gave the Jews when they said that, that, that we're fine because of the covenants. Paul's wrong. We're not condemned. We have the covenants of God and God will fulfill his promises. And, and Paul told them, no, you're wrong about that. That's to the nation. And remember the example he gave? Who was it? David in Psalm 51. Paul quotes from a section of Psalm 51 with David. Because David knew what? Judgment is going to come so hard on me. He wasn't escaped from it because he was a Jew. He wasn't escaped from it because he was a king. He didn't escape from it even though he had his own covenant in his name. It's a fear of God that man needs. And the truth is, you've often heard me use this phrase over the last eight years. Too often, even we as Christians, listen to me, we live as practical atheists. We know God is there. We don't question that. We don't question the Creator. But we don't live our lives as if He's there. Because the very first thing that brings in is a fear of God. When you're home alone tonight, nobody else is around, and you get on that phone or you get on that computer... Many of you will choose to live as a practical atheist. Not even acknowledging God is right there. The holy and righteous God. Remember, we got into chapter 2 how we take advantage of God's goodness. So much so that when he acts just, we think God is wrong. 
But that's just because we're so used to his goodness. Then lastly, and this is so important, this gets really good here. The second, this won't take as long as the, as the third. The cul-de-sac of the law I needed to see. But it'll make sense. Look at 19 and 20. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Oh, this, this is getting really good. Again, both Jew and Gentile are under the law. It doesn't matter. The Jew had the written law, and we've already seen that the, even the pagan, those without, the Gentiles had the written law on their hearts. No one is without excuse. Paul teaching here, the point of the law is this, that every mouth may be stopped. Remember, I brought this verse up in chapter 1. I said, Paul's whole, whole point is, is to be able to get to verse 19, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world guilty before God. He's showing the law was given to show us guilty, to show us condemned. It was a dead end, which is what cul-de-sac means. Dead end. But think about it. The Jews thought it was a highway. They thought it was a road. They thought it would get them to God. And he's saying, no, it's a dead end. What you think is to life is unto death. You're looking at the law for the completely the wrong purpose. The law can never justify you. You're on a dead-end street, and you don't even know it. You think this is going to get you through, but you'll never get through. It's a dead end. It's not there to justify you. It's not possible. It's there to show you that at your core, you are corrupt. That in your conversation, you are corrupt. And that, and, and that in your conduct, you are corrupt. This is the purpose of the law. Because by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul thus far has made an incredible, strong case how all of mankind is in a great deal of trouble before a holy and righteous God. How we are all guilty. He has laid this incredible foundation through chapter 1, chapter 2, coming into chapter 3, and um, all the way down through verse 20. This incredible foundation of man's wicked condition before a holy God. This is the foundation for now what is coming. For now where he's going to go. Because he is getting ready to lay out one of the most important doctrines in the Word of God. Justification by faith through God's righteousness. Look where he goes in the next two verses. Now I'm not going to get to this until next, until next week. But look at this. It's really good. Look at verse 20. Look where he's going now for the first time. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God 
which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. What he has been doing is laying this incredible foundation. Listen, when we are talking to others, it is so imperative that they see that wicked condition before a holy God. It's there. Man will see it. Listen, know that, that I do need him. I do need to be saved. I incondemned. I see how vile I am. I see how wretched I am. I mean, apart from that, you might be able to manipulate somebody into praying a prayer, but there is no salvation. None. Paul is, is, has been building and building and building so he can show all that every mouth may be stopped, guilty before God, realizing their great need of salvation, which is going to come only one way, that God in his mercy and in his grace is going to impute unto us his son's righteousness. Just think how incredible. Think of, think of your condition. You are that one that is corrupt to your core. You are the one that is corrupt in your conversation. You are the one who is corrupt in your conduct. Yet the Creator Almighty has established a way by faith that you could look perfectly righteous before Him through His Son. It's not the law. It's not coming to church. It's not your good works. It is that justification that comes through faith in what Jesus Christ did for you. It's one of those things that should cause, cause us to fall down before God, again, like I said in the introduction, and just say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. By the way, it's here where I, I don't understand how anybody would ever, any saved person should ever have an issue with coming before God and saying, God, whatever you want with my life, I'll do. How could you not come to that conclusion when you realize who you are, what you are, and what he did to save you? Why would you not want to say, God, whatever you want, I don't care what it is. My life is yours. I see what you did for me, the condition I was in and what I deserved. And through your grace, I mean, send in your son to become sin for me. Lord, whatever you want, I'm yours. Because he is what life is all about. You see, it's only when man is humiliated and sees himself as undone and as wicked and vile, it is then, when he sees his guilt, will he truly embrace the gospel and run to God. With heads bowed and eyes closed.